0: Good morning, Spanish River Church. It is good to see you. For those of you who are joining us at home, thank you for joining your church family. Are you already studying the Bible this morning? Yeah. All right, this section over here is, if you have your Bible, uh, grab it, and, or smartphone, and turn to the book of Jonah. And while you're looking at that, let me just say this, um, the uh, I, I truly do believe that, as Jimmy mentioned earlier, that... We are living in a historic time in the life of our church family. I mean, God is undeniably at work in and through us. And um, we must seize this moment and join God in what he is doing. Now, don't miss this moment. God has called David Cassidy to join him in his great redemptive mission here in South Florida. And I'm personally excited about that. And the reason I'm excited about that is because when people answer the call to missions to join God in where he's at work, lives change. In fact, we're going to look at a study of a book over the next few weeks together where actually a city changes because of that. Now, here's what I don't want you to miss. Just as sure as God has called Pastor Cassidy, Pastor David, here to Boca Raton and to South Florida, he has called you here. He has called you to be a part of his great redemptive mission in bringing his grace and mercy and steadfast love to a city, to a region who desperately needs it. And so uh, I'm excited about you joining God in mission here. Now, here's one of the questions I want to ask you is... um, We are all called to reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so, the question I want to ask you is who's your one? Like, who's the one person right now in your life that God could use to pour out his grace and mercy and salvation into? I mean, the guy who God's called me to reach, I can tell you the one person is a guy named Alex, a friend of mine. Who's your one? Who's the one that God can use you to radically change their lives for all of eternity? I would love in our culture if, over the next five weeks, as we're heading to Easter and we all have our one that we are praying for, that we as a culture, as a church, would walk around and say, Who's your one? I mean, who's your one? Who's the one that you want to see come to Christ? Let's stop and pray for that one. We had exchanged names, and we would just pray that God would use us to reach that person and even invite them to come on Easter Sunday morning to hear the good news of the gospel. So who's your one? Who's your one? Let's pray, and we'll jump into our text. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you have called us into this great redemptive mission with you, and that we get to be a part of it. And that's something worth getting excited about. God, I thank you that all the things you have done in the history of this church. And I thank you for what you're doing in this moment. Ah, may we as a church rally around your undeniable work in our lives. God, use us to make your name great in Boca Raton in South Florida. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're beginning a brand new series this morning entitled The Relentless Pursuit. And this is going to take us through the great Old Testament uh, book of Jonah. Now, you may be sitting here going, why Jonah? I mean, isn't that just a book about a guy who got swallowed by a big fish and barfed up on some beach somewhere? I mean, why would we study the book of Jonah? Now, I want you to catch this right up front as we begin to journey this book together. The whole theme of this short book is that God is relentlessly pursuing after you. It's all about sin and grace. Sin is us running from God in our rebellion. Grace is God's relentless pursuit of undeserving sinners like you and me. And so this book is all about sin and grace. Now, everybody knows about Jonah. Like People who have never even read the Bible know about Jonah and the whale, right? It's become part of our folklore. Now, if the last time you've done a deep dive study of the book of Jonah was Sunday school as a kid, well then I think over the next few weeks you're going to be surprised at the depth and the riches and the beauty of the gospel that is found in this great Old Testament book. Now, um, the, the, I love it because it is a powerful story. And stories are the most prominent biblical way of helping us enter into God's story. Stories, like in contrast to just abstract statements of truth, tease us into becoming a participant in the story and rather just listening, it draws us into the action of the story. And We may start out as we read the story as spectators and maybe even critics But if it's a good story, and every story in Scripture is a good story, it pulls you into the story. It makes you an active participant, and the story begins to read you as you read the story. And so, one of the reasons I love the story of Jonah, and I think one of the reasons it's so captivating, is that Jonah is not a hero too high and mighty for us to identify with. I mean, he doesn't do anything great. And instead of being held up as an ideal that we are to idolize, we find Jonah as a companion in our own struggles. He's someone at our level and someone we can relate to. Now, and even when Jonah does something right, like preaching to the great city of Nineveh, he does it all wrong by getting angry at God. But the whole time, God is actively at work despite Jonah's ineptness. Despite the hardness of Jonah's heart, God is at work through him. And I just love the authenticity of Jonah's story. And so let's look at how this great story begins. Let's begin in verse 1. It says, Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Now every great story begins this way. It's how the word of the Lord came to Jonah. God is calling Jonah to be caught up in his great redemptive mission to redeem all of creation by himself. And we all have this calling. We're all called to join God in this mission. And so Jonah is called to go to Nineveh. Now this is a city in which God said their evil has come up before me. Now, I couldn't even begin to tell you about the evil that ran rampant in this city of Nineveh. I and mean, if I just began to give you illustrations of how evil this city was, this would quickly become a rated R sermon, right? It was, it, was, it, it was a horrendous stench that reached the heavens and filled the nostrils of God. That's how evil this city was. But here's what I don't want you to miss is Nineveh desperately needed God's grace and mercy and steadfast love. And God in his great grace and mercy was sending Jonah to share exactly that. I mean, Nineveh wasn't much different than Boca or South Florida. We desperately need God's grace and mercy and steadfast love. And so God has spoken. And it's called Jonah to go to Nineveh. And what is Jonah's response? He runs. He runs. Now, we're going to find in this first chapter of Jonah six warnings about running. And we're going to go through these six warnings really quick this morning. But I hope hope you catch them. They are crucial for you knowing not only yourself, but to knowing and experiencing the grace and mercy and steadfast love of God. And so let's jump right into it. Warning number one is that we all run from God. I mean, it is so important for us to know this truth, that we all have this propensity to run and hide from God. Now look at Jonah, verse 3, it says, But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. We are all fugitives from God. Now, until you acknowledge you run from him, you will never find him until until you know that you run from him. And not only know that you run from him, but know how you run from him. You can never grow spiritually. Now, why do we run? Why do we run? We run from God when we try to run our own lives. And so let me ask you a question. What area of your life have you failed to entrust to God completely? What area of your life are you still holding on control of? Are you still trying to figure out that i got a plan better than God and I want to live out my plan? What area of your life have you failed to completely surrender to the Lordship of Jesus Christ? Now instead of trying to gain control, what we're going to see in this story is that we ought to surrender control. I mean, we're going to find out that uh, we have very little in life that we can control. And so why not give it completely to God anyway? And so why was Jonah running from God? Reading chapter 1 doesn't re- reveal Jonah's motivation. You have to flip one page over. In my, in my <laughs> Bible, it's only barely two and a half pages long. But In Jonah chapter 4, verse 2, it exposes Jonah's heart, why he was running from God. Listen to this, he says, and he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That is why I made haste and flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding In steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Now here's what's astonishing. The reason Jonah ran is not because he was afraid of failure. No. He was afraid of success. He was afraid that if he went and preached the gospel to Nineveh, that they would repent. That they would experience the grace and mercy and steadfast love. The abounding steadfast love of God. And he wanted them destroyed. Now the point is is that Jonah was not in a position to preach grace. He couldn't call people to repent because he couldn't preach about sin and grace. Because he was a stranger to it himself. Notice in verse uh, verse 3 back in chapter 1. That Jonah was running away from the presence of the Lord. In fact in this chapter it says it twice. Jonah is running from the presence of the Lord. I think one of the great tragedies from running from God is that we're running away from his presence. We doubt God's goodness and reign and rule in our lives. And so we try to run our own lives. And when we do that, we run from God's grace and mercy and steadfast love that can only be found in his presence. And when we run from God's grace, we have no grace to give others. Now, here's warning number two. When we run from God, we can always find a way. Look in verse, the second part of verse 3. It says, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. And so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. Now, Nineveh was about 500 miles to uh, the west, which is, that's west, toward uh, the modern-day city of Mosul, Iraq. And Tarshish was about 2,500 miles east on the southern coast of Spain. And so when Jonah decided that he was going to run from God, he was going to go as far as he could possibly go. He took a one-way ticket to what was then the ends of the earth. Now when it comes to running from God, you can always find your ship to take you to your place of disobedience. It's always there. It never ceases to amaze me that when I want to run from God, I can always find a way. And oftentimes, there's socially respectable ways. But I can find that way. And When I want to run from God, I can find a way. And we waste a lot of time, a lot of money, and a lot of energy running from God. In fact, some people can waste a whole lifetime running from god and never experiencing his presence his grace his mercy his abounding steadfast love now here's the problem with running from god it's always a downward spiral as you read the book of jonah it says he went down to joppa went down to the bottom of a boat went down to the bottom of the sea. When we run from God, there's always a way. But it's always a downward spiral. Now here's warning number three. We can run, but we can't hide. You can run as fast and as far from God as you can, but you can't hide from God. We see this play out vividly in verse four. It says, But the Lord Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, And there was a mighty tempest on the sea, and so that the ship threatened to break up. And then the mariners were afraid and cried out to each his God. I mean, they were like middle school girls screaming at a Billie Eilish concert, right? I mean, these hardened sailors were freaking out, and they hurled their cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. They were like, man, all this cargo that we're going to make money for means nothing if we lose our lives. And then, the, uh, and then, but Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep, so that the captain came to him and said to him, what do you mean, you sleeper, arise, call out to your God, perhaps that God will give us thought to us that we may not perish. Where was Jonah at where all this great storm was happening? He was asleep in the bottom of the boat. He thought he escaped God. He thought he could hide. Like the most absurd part of this entire story is that Jonah thought he could run and hide from God. I mean, where can you hide from an all-knowing, all-powerful God? I mean, where are you going to go? I love it. When my three daughters were young, I always loved playing hide-and-seek with them. I mean, it was so much fun playing hide-and-seek with little kids, right? Because they run, go hide, and they ride behind the curtains. And, And you could see their feet sticking out below the curtains. And you're like, oh, you know, I can't find Amber. Where's Amber? And you could see her feet beneath the curtain. And she's like, oh, Dad can't see me, right? Or they're hiding under the bed, and you walk in the room, where's Amber? And you hear this giggling under the bed, and you act like you can't hear it, right? And then after a while, you know, they're finding exhausting all. I mean, one of my kids hid in a uh, kitchen countertop. Got to give her respect for that, you know, in the, in the kitchen counters. And uh, it took me a moment to find her, but I found her. Because I knew every square inch of my house, I had it built. But then after a while, what do little kids do? They run out of places to hide, so they just sit there and cover their eyes. Because if they think that, well, I can't see dad, so dad can't see me. And you know, that's cute when they're two. But when you are running from God, it's heartbreaking. It's a tragedy as an adult. And yet... Since Adam, we've all had this propensity to try to run and hide from God. Now, when we run and hide, Psalms 39, 7 asks this great question. It says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? The great question there's nowhere in God's green earth that we could ever run and hide from God. We run and hide, and if you don't see that, then you don't know yourself. And there are so many ways that we run and hide by blaming, avoiding, negotiating. I mean, we can be running and hiding from God by sitting in a pew on Sunday morning. When we run from God, we always do foolish things, like running to a boat. Like, how foolish is that? We do foolish things when we turn our back on the source of wisdom. We make bad decisions. We get in bad relationships we go in bad directions and everybody around us knows that we are making bad decisions except for us unless you're aware that you run from God now I want you to notice that in the beginning of verse 3 it reads but Jonah and then in response to Jonah's rebellion in the beginning of the verse 4 it reads but the Lord now here's what I want you to see God always has the last word and we can't out argue or outrun God. He loves us too much to let this happen. We can run, but we can't hide. The storm is God's love for Jonah. We'll see this more clearly in a moment. But here's warning number four when we run, others are affected, others are impacted. We see this in the story. In verse 7 it says, And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know whose account this evil has come upon us. And so they cast lots, and the lots fell, surprise, on Jonah. And then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country, and what people are you? I mean, these pagan sailors knew something that we often forget in our modern culture, that we never sin in isolation. Others are always affected by the consequences of our sin. Now, one of the sick twists of sin is that it's never personal. We live in a culture that propagates the myth that sin is personal. And we hear this all the time. What I do in private doesn't impact you. Now hear me, first and foremost, sin is never personal because it's a sin against God. Like, sin isn't just simply breaking the law of God, it is breaking the very heart of God. Now secondly, our sin also breaks the hearts of those around us. Sin is so deceptive that it often uh, blinds us to the impact it has on others. Like, for example, when my heart is not centered on Jesus, it's hard to love my wife well. If it's centered on other things, then I will neglect her for those other things. If it's centered on her, then I will have expectations of her that are unrealistic and crushing. And so it always impacts her. Either way, she's impacted. But... If my heart is centered on Christ, then I am freed to love my wife with all the grace and the mercy and abounding steadfast love that I find in Christ. Now, when I'm running from God, I'm not only sinning against God, I'm sinning against those I am called to love. Now, I dare you, ask your spouse, How you run from God. Ask a close friend how you run from God. They will know because they will have felt it. Now warning number five. We can keep on running, but God is running everything. Right? We can keep on running, but God is running every minute molecule in this infinite universe in which we live. So keep on running. But God is ultimately in control. Look at Jonah's response to the seller's questions. This is the first time Jonah speaks in this story. In verse 9 it says, And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Like, he made all of this. He's in control of all of this. And then in verse 10 it says, Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, what is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord. Third time in this chapter that's mentioned. Because he had told them. And then in verse 11 it said, he said that he said to, the, to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. I mean, the tension in this story is rising. It's coming to a climax. And it's all over who's in control. Let's crunch the numbers and see. What is Jonah in control of? Well, he got himself in a boat. What's God in control of? The very oceans that that boat's in, the very seas, the very waves, the very winds. That that boat existed. I mean, God's even in control of the dice, and soon he'll be in control of a big fish. I mean, I think God wins hands down. He is ultimately in control. Oh, God sends this killer storm to save Jonah's life. And when we run from God, we can't expect storms. Whenever we are trying to run from God, He is committed to making our lives miserable. For our sakes, because he loves you. He knows your greatest refuge is in his presence. And so oftentimes he'll use storms in life to draw his, us back to himself, to the end of ourselves, and back to him. And he doesn't do it to punish us, but to mercifully, mercifully, mercif, mercifully intervene in our lives. And until we see God sent storms as interventions and not punishments, we will never get better. We will only get bitter. And some difficult circumstances that we face in our lives, even right now, may well be a God sent storm of mercy. Intended to drive us to the end of ourselves. And to his presence. It's your response to the storm that will make you or break you. It will make you either much harder or much softer and wiser and deeper. Let's look at Jonah's response to the storm. In verse 12, he said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Jonah is telling them, throw him into the sea as a sacrifice. He is finally entrusting himself completely to God in his grace. The storm, in a sense, has awakened him from his slumber. But look how the sailors respond in verse 13. It says, nevertheless, the men rode hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. And some of you are in this spot right now. You're rowing, and you're rowing, and you're rowing. You're trying as hard as you can to outrun the storm, but you can't. You see, because Jesus is your only deliverer. These men wanted to survive the storm without the sacrifice. They turned again to their own means to save themselves. And the impulse is to depend upon our own resources and refuse God's means of deliverance. Man, that's deeply embedded in the human heart. That's our default mode. But there are four important words in verse 3 that I want you to see. Here they are. But they could not. But they could not. These four words are the turning point in the story. When the crew realized they couldn't beat the storm, they turned in desperation and staked their lives on the sacrifice of Jonah. You see, the storm of God's discipline is always stronger than we are. We do not have the ability to escape such a storm, no matter how hard we try. In fact, most people spend their whole lives running from storms when they ought to be running to God. The storms of God's discipline will wreck us unless it brings us to the end of us. There's no refuge from God. There is only refuge in God. Look at how the sailors ultimately responded in verse 14. It says, Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. Lay not on us innocent blood for you, O Lord, Have done it as it pleased you. And so they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea. And the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly. And they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. They ultimately became dependent on the God who controls the winds and the waves. The God who controls everything. They finally surrendered to him. Now, here's what I want you to see this morning. Don't waste your storm. Let the storms of life bring you into a deeper and deeper trust and reliance upon God. Now, I know most of you are going through storms right now. That's the last thing you want to hear. But the only reason I bring it up this morning is that God graciously brings storms into our lives, often to show us how little control we have and how much we need to surrender every aspect of our lives to his control. It's in the storms that we experience God's grace in a deep and life-transforming way. So don't waste your storm. God is showing you his mercy in the midst of the storm. Surrender to him. There is love beneath the waves. Warning number six, God is running after you. It's a warning infused with deep hope and encouragement. Look at verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah in the belly of the fish for three days and for three nights. Now, why why did God chase after Jonah? Couldn't he have easily got another prophet to go to Nineveh? The answer is that God's mercy is massive. He is a God of second chances. This storm, this big fish that God sends tells us that God spares no expense in going after those who run from him. He relentlessly pursues after fugitives like Jonah, like me, and like you. Now there's much debate about whether this story is true or not. I believe that it's true and here's why. Because Jesus believed it was true. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 40, Jesus says, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of a great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. God's pursuit of a fugitive humanity culminates at the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, Jewish families on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, will gather together as a family and read straight through the book of Jonah. And at the end, the whole family will respond in unison, we are Jonah. We are Jonah. They realize the warnings about running from God and they confess that they are Jonah and they're desperately in need of God's mercy and grace and steadfast love. You are Jonah. I am Jonah. We tend to run from God. And we know this. There's only really two responses one is repentance, because there is no refuge from God. There's only refuge in God, and here's why. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus is a real person who was thrown into the storm of God's wrath. And because he was thrown into the storm of God's wrath, the storm of God's wrath has subsided. That is why Jesus could say, the one greater in Jonah is here, and I am him. Because Jonah's sacrifice could only rescue sailors from a temporal hell Jesus' sacrifice rescues us from an eternal hell. So what area of your life do you need to surrender to God? Maybe it's your whole life. Maybe you've never fully, completely surrendered your life to God who is full of mercy and grace. The greatest thing you can ever do is surrender to Him and be awashed in His grace and mercy and abounding steadfast love. So repent, but also rejoice. Rejoice. You haven't truly repented until you rejoice in what a great Savior you have in Jesus Christ. He bore all of God's wrath and judgment on himself. He became the sacrifice that rescues us with his grace and mercy. Man, and when you experience that, there is an abounding joy. That motivates your heart, that compels you to join God in His redemptive mission. You can't resist singing of God's goodness, grace, and glory. Will you seize this moment? Will you answer the call to join God in His great redemptive mission? Who's your one? Who's that one person that God is calling you to reach? for me, it's Alex. And here's what I do. Every day I pray for Alex. I do three things. I intercede, I invest, and I invite. I pray every single day that God's Spirit would draw Alex to himself. And then I invest in Alex. There's often times when we're on the phone together and uh, the conversation lingers because I want to know, Alex, people don't care what you know until they know how much you care and so I ask about Alex I want to hear I want to update I want to hear what he's struggling with and so I intercede I invest and then I invite this past Tuesday on a phone call with Alex I said man Easter's coming you got to come visit my church he goes man I haven't been to church in a long time in my entire adult life I don't know if God would have me there and I'm like more than anything You need to know God's grace, mercy, and abounding steadfast love. Who's your one? Will you stand with me and let's pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you that you relentlessly pursue after fugitives like me, like Jonah, in order that we may experience your presence, your mercy, your grace, your abounding steadfast love. Oh, may that truth so resonate in our hearts and minds that it would fill us with joy, a joy that could not be contained, a joy that we have to share with that one who you've called us to reach for your glory. Let's rejoice in what a great a Savior we have.